To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us to get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. Hello, I'm Roger Hearing. Now, England has hit its milestone of vaccinating the top four priority groups, including the over 70s, by February the 15th, with 15 million jabs. The UK has now given at least one dose to over a quarter of the adult population. But the progress, of course, adds pressure on to Boris Johnson to begin reopening the economy. Now, this weekend, Conservative backbenchers in the COVID recovery group said they thought all restrictions should be lifted by the end of April. The government has rejected calls to put a date on when the measures will be eased, saying it remains cautious. Well, joining us now is Tobias Elwood, Conservative MP for Bournemouth East and Chair of the Defence Select Committee. Tobias, welcome to the programme and thank you so much for being with us. Um, so, the government hit its vaccination target, as I said. Some of your colleagues, however, urging um, ending the lockdown much earlier, ending all restrictions, in fact, perhaps earlier than the government wants. Where do you stand on all this? Well, firstly, let's just congratulate what an incredible effort this has been to reach this milestone. You can look back over the last uh, you know, 16 months or so, and there have been some challenges facing the government. We were quite late in the day in getting PPE into this country. But I think it's a tribute to Britain's life sciences, but also our public health structure, that we've been able to get this vaccination out across the country. Fantastic milestone. But absolutely right. What happens next? We need to move on to the next cohort of people to vaccinate. The R rating is falling. We're seeing the fantastically, you know, the effort being made, hospitalizations, daily cases and deaths. It's all looking positive. But we've had these false dawns in the past. Go back to Christmas when we hoped to allow people to get together. And then we had another variant turn up. You know, we were surprised by the direction of sudden change we had to make. So I agree with the prime minister. It would be wrong to set a date now looking ahead three or four weeks. What he needs to do is set the conditions for which we can open our economy up, you know, close down the, the actual lockdown and move back to the tiering system. I think we to get the country's hopes up to put a date and then only for that possibly to then have to move uh, would, I think, cause more confusion, more problems. But, but Tobias, the point surely is if we vaccinated this many people... And it's the vulnerable groups, the people who would become very ill, potentially could die. Uh, then surely the danger has to some extent passed. I mean, and the scientists seem to think that the variants won't affect that dramatically. Isn't it just shooting ourselves in the foot not to open up and re rebuild the economy at this stage? You're absolutely right. We need to get that economy open. We heard the Chancellor speak last week. The data came through. You know, it's been one of the toughest years on record. Uh, you know, last year, we want to do that. There's absolutely everybody's interest to make that happen. But we also have seen in the past whereby we wanted to open up and then we've had to see we'd have to close down again. We still don't know 
where the people who have received the vaccine can still transmit uh, the virus. Until that is clear, absolutely it would be irresponsible to start opening up those. So that we're waiting for that data to come about, but the, our rating is going down. Schools will be imperative. I'd like to see teachers be vaccinated you know, in this next tranche of people going through so we can get uh, the, uh, the schools back, uh, which I think would help everybody. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about where you are because it's interesting. You're in a in a city where there are, I would guess, a probably disproportionately high number of the elderly. Um, also, quite a lot of children, of course, wanted to go back to school. But that's in where you are in Bournemouth. Has the vaccination process got to the point really where schools can reopen safely, uh, and the older people who live there are safe for that? So many uh, questions that are raised when you say let's open schools. You know, will teachers be safe? Uh, will the children continue to uh, spread the virus, which we know is happening, but they do it you know, without being affected by the virus itself. That will have a hit on the R rating, no doubt take it back up again. But do we have that space, that capacity to allow that to happen, but then not infect, you know, not see the actual virus move on again? Are we ready for another variation of this virus to then turn up? All these questions need to be factored in before you make these big decisions. And making those decisions today before we have that data, I think, would be irresponsible. You know, this is a bit like, you know, you, you make a cake, it tells you to bake it for 20 minutes. If it's not ready after 20 minutes, you just say, well, I've got to follow the instructions of the, the, the recipe tells me to and eat it as it is. Or do I actually take my own judgment and then cook it for a bit longer? So it's uh, a sort of strange analysis, but you know where I'm going with it. Well, I know where you're going with it, Tobias, but I suppose the problem is, you know, to use your analogy... The recipe is not clear. I mean, if it were clear, it's like you've got several different recipes competing because the scientists aren't clear about it either. And that shows the point that if we continue this rather strange analogy, nobody's actually made this cake before. There's no playbook for us to actually follow. You can compare this with the Spanish flu or, or Mars and so forth, these other uh, you know, flu, uh, flu variants that came through. The, what we're cha- looking at here is something on a scale that is simply unprecedented we know that this is the last effort before we're able to liberate ourselves and get us you know get the economy open we need to get it right i'd hate to see us having to endure another lockdown because we opened up too quickly but where you are again i've said that there's quite a high elderly population there, but it is also a place of course that depends very much on the holiday trade uh, as you know i guess your inbox is probably full of hoteliers and restaurateurs pleading for a, a lifting of, of things um uh, what is the prospect i mean i, I suppose here's the question a lot of mps have been asked have you booked your summer holiday yet for example no not at all and again it would be i think it would be uh, premature to do so what we're waiting to see from the chancellor is the package of economic measures which uh, i think have been um second to none to date how we can continue to make sure we the businesses um hospitality in particular are able to survive to when we can actually open up but i stress the point that we need to be cautious about this we need to get this right because of the false storms that we've had in the past it is going to happen but we just need to be cautious about this. But I understand, you know, the concerns, particularly from colleagues, wanting to get our economy back open. Let me also ask you about the, the issue to do with people coming into this country. Uh, the government has finally, it seems to a lot of people, got around to sorting out that people who are coming in from a particular list of states have to quarantine. Uh, hotel 
rooms provided, some doubt about the numbers. Um, but it's it does seem to be a policy in the end, even when implemented, it's full of holes. For example, and I'll, we'll just play you a little bit of sound here from uh, someone who was talking about this, someone involved in the unions, involved with the border force, Lucy Morton of the Borders Immigration and Customs Union. She's worried about how all this is going to work in practice. They've been on the aircraft. They've gone through the airport on their own. They've got into the queue and stood shoulder to shoulder, not only with the people on their own aircraft, but the people from any other arriving flights as well. They've interacted with the border force officer before they get handed on to the quarantine management services rep. Now, that was Lucy Morton from the Borders Immigration and Customs Union. I mean, you'll know from your military experience, it's important everyone knows what they're doing, what their rights are and how they're supposed to behave. This seems to be full of holes, doesn't it? Well, it also illustrates why it's important that we don't suddenly open our economy up. Because when you have um, perhaps uh, administrative challenges, such as going through on border control, that needs obviously to be looked at again, aren't as working as efficiently, that could lead to a sudden spike in cases. And we saw this exactly happen in Melbourne, where they had some some, uh, hotels that were operating to quarantine and they had an outbreak. It's led to Melbourne itself having to close, having to introduce yet another lockdown. What I need to think we need to you know, focus on is the concept of a vaccination passport. Yes, everybody should be able to travel if they are required to do so and go through that quarantine and all the red tape that would necessarily be there to uh, prevent the spread of the virus. But we need to brace ourselves for the fact that if you are vaccinated uh, and it's proved that you do not pass it on uh, if you've had the vaccination, then an internationally recognised documentation to prove that you had the vaccination uh, needs to be recognised. And that's actually happening in Australia, the Gulf, Iceland, Portugal, Spain are looking at this as well. And we already use such a system. This is not unprecedented uh, in the form of yellow fever and polio and other things like that. So there is a standard already in play we need to be able to consider if we want to open up that economy that we we're talking about before we need to be flexible and introduce you know clever systems that we're able to do through through a digital capability let me finally and briefly move you on to your area of course as, as chair of the commons select uh, defense committee um there's been stories over the weekend the army is set to be reduced to 72,500 people as part of the government's defense review published <laughs> next month uh, a lot of people shocked by this. Do you, is it something you would back? I, I don't back a reduction in our armed forces. Uh, you, you know, look back over the last 10 years and look over to the next 10 years coming. It's going to get even more bumpy. Our world is getting more complicated. Threats are absolutely increasing. They're becoming more diverse. The whole digital plane is adding a new dimension to the character of conflict. If we want to do more than just defend our shores, but step forward as a force for good, on the international uh, table, then we need to be able to uh, have the armed force that's capable to do that, do, you know, play our part with NATO. And what we're seeing from Joe Biden is uh, actually removing the isolationist um, policies that we saw under Donald Trump, but willing to step up and check those adversaries, not least with the growing geopolitical competition that we're receiving from, from China. We can't do that if we cut the size of our armed forces. Even if technology fills the gap? Well, you know, I understand this call to say, oh, drones will fill the gap. You know, if you're doing stabilization operations across the world, you can't replace those with drones. And the actual threat that I see over the next 10 years is us being nudged out uh, from friendships across the Commonwealth, for example. You know, China is gifting its military a kit 
to countries right across Africa, nudging us out. So they then yeah. develop the relationship, which develops into a prosperity and an economic yeah. relationship, a technological relationship. You can't do that with drones. You need people to do that. Right. That is the bonds that we need to have, the trust or- that, you know, that we need to develop. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. We begin with equality as the UK's watchdog is facing demands to investigate claims that ministers have sidelined key gender laws in their response to the COVID pandemic. That's according to The Guardian. It says a coalition of organisations, including the Trades Union Congress, Amnesty International, Save the Children and the Fawcett Society, have accused the government of taking decisions that are deepening inequalities. The letter to the Equalities and Human Rights Commission argues that the government has failed in its duty to consider the impact of key policies on women and other groups protected under the Equality Act. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson's backing President Joe Biden's call for China to make available raw data relating to the virus outbreak. The Prime Minister made the comment during an interview with CBS Television's Face the Nation. Was it in a, in a wet market? Did it come from uh, the bats? Were the bats associated with the, the pangolins? All these questions are now matters of uh, speculation. Uh, we need to see the data. We need to see all the evidence. So I, I thoroughly support what President Biden has said about that. Investigators from the World Health Organization have just visited China and concluded it was unlikely that the virus leaked from a lab in Wuhan. The U.S. has expressed concerns about the Chinese government's interference in the probe. And Andrew Lloyd Webber says the government needs to open up London theatres to prevent the industry from collapsing. Lloyd Webber told Bloomberg that work for actors and musicians, along with investment in future productions, is at risk because ministers have kept quiet on how and when they might reopen public spaces after the pandemic. The composer behind hit musicals, including Phantom of the Opera and Evita, owns seven theatres in the West End, which are costing a million pounds a month, even while they're shut. Now, let's talk about leadership. We live in an age of populist leaders in Turkey, in the Philippines, in Hungary. Until a month ago, many people said in the White House, too. Supporters see them as leaders who connect with ordinary people, aren't part of the traditional political establishment, and say things as they are, rather than dressing them up in fancy language. Opponents, on the other hand, see them as dangerous narcissists, inflated by their own egos, unprincipled demagogues, pulling the wool over the eyes of the credulous masses. But why are people so attracted to leaders like this? Well, joining us now is Eddie Brummelman, who's assistant professor at the University of Amsterdam and Jacobs Foundation Research Fellow at the Research Institute of Child Development and Education. Eddie, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. Now, you've been doing some rather interesting research into this. Just give us a sense of what the research was and what your conclusions were. We studied um, leadership in in children, and we wanted to know, do we see the same leadership processes that we found in adults also in in childhood? So do we see kids uh, with narcissistic personality traits emerging as leaders in classrooms? So what we did is we measured uh, narcissistic personality traits in kids, and they were between 7 and 14 years old. 
And we also asked them to nominate classmates who they saw as true leaders. And what we found is that kids who had more narcissistic personality traits were more likely to be seen by the classmates as real leaders. Okay, that's very interesting. Now, first of all, I suppose one should ask you to define your terms. How, what would you define as narcissistic personality traits? Yeah, that's interesting. So it's a personality trait. Most people see it as a disorder, but it is actually a trait that most of us have to some extent, but some people more than others. And it includes a sense of self-importance and entitlement. So you see yourself as superior to others. You believe you're entitled to privileges, and you also crave other people's respect and admiration. Is it possible to see that in a child that young, though? I mean, we're used to thinking of it in adults, I suppose. Many people would just say, well, that's, that's just the way children are. Yes, yeah, that's true. I mean, kids are, especially at the young age, extremely self-confident. They overestimate themselves uh, a lot. So I get the question a lot from parents, like, is my child a narcissist? But in many cases, the self-confidence and the overestimation is really normative. But what defines narcissism is the sense of superiority. And um, I think what classmates are noticing in kids who have narcissistic traits is their self-confidence. And I think that's what attracts kids to nominate those narcissistic kids as, as leaders, because we want leaders who are self-confident, who can make decisions for us. Now, that's, it's really interesting. So what are the conclusions you think you could draw for the wider world from this? Yeah, what we also studied was in the same study, is we, we not only wanted to find out do kids with narcissistic traits emerge as leaders, but do they function well as leaders? So we conducted a separate experiment where we studied kids with narcissistic traits in leadership positions, and we found they did not excel. They performed perfectly average. They did not show any superior leadership behavior. They did not. Their groups didn't perform better than other groups. So although people see them as great leaders, they actually are not great leaders. And I think that's important because... We often select leaders based on self-confidence and not based on competence. And I think we should design policies in society to ensure that, especially for important leadership positions, we select on competence and we are not fooled by a person's self-confidence. Well, we'll come on to that in a moment, because I think that asks a very big question about uh, democracy itself. But, but first of all, so what you're saying is what you saw in these children mimics, in a way, what does happen in the real world, in the world of politics. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what it, what, it, what it shows is that given that we can de- detect these processes at such a young age, it suggests that there's some, something fundamental, something, about, something deep about human nature, about how we select leaders and what we find attractive and appealing in leaders. Uh, and I think that's, important, that's an important takeaway. I mean, what was interesting to me also is that, I mean, you'll be aware, if you think about Donald Trump, and I suppose people could argue about his level of narcissism, he was often satirized as being childish. Uh, yeah. I, I, so in a way, we're playing into what you're talking about, that, that perhaps the childish uh, characteristics that you've seen in your experiment are carried over into adulthood. That's so interesting that, that you say that, because I see that comparison a lot. There was recently an article in The Guardian comparing Trump to a toddler who had a temper tantrum. And... Um, what we've argued in our paper is also that this comparison is actually very dangerous because comparing Trump to a child basically legitimizes his behavior. Like a, a toddler cannot be held accountable for undermining democracy, but an adult can. So it's really important to not take these findings to suggest that narcissistic leaders are somehow childlike. Um, I think what these findings mean is that these processes where people who are extremely self-confident and maybe a bit derogating towards others 
are more likely to emerge as leaders is something we should think about to design policies to prevent those people from getting into leadership positions. Uh, unless, well, of course, they are very competent as well. Well, that's, that's really the point, isn't it? Because I suppose the counter-argument is to say that democracy itself, we, we empower the people to make the choice um, of, of who their leaders are, and the yeah. people making those choices aren't necessarily going to be easily able to detect competence, as you might call it, yeah. uh, and we'll see more showmanship, perhaps, or more narcissism, but we'll approve of it. So short yeah. of short-circuiting democracy and saying, no, no, you can't have everyone you want. You can only have this set of competent people. Uh, we can't really deal with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very tricky, delicate question because I think the problem is that uh, we see that in kids as well, that kids with narcissistic traits and adults with narcissistic traits are able to convince other people to have skills they don't actually have. Um so what is democracy if we select people based on qualities they say they have, but they actually don't have? Um, so maybe, uh, I mean, what some uh, media implement this is these fact-checking uh, processes, but I'm not sure if they actually work. But that's, that's I think, something we should consider. I mean, some people might say what you're almost arguing towards is something that isn't perhaps so much of a democracy, more of a technocracy. I mean, there's been a lot of arguments, as you'll be yeah. aware, about that in Italy at the moment, uh, bringing yeah. in people who are just good at doing it rather than people who um, perhaps might appeal to the voters. Yeah, and I think you, this is a very sensitive issue. And there's, there's, there are also some upsides to, to narcissism in that uh, narcissists, especially in adults, are extremely charming and um, People enjoy listening to them. They're very charismatic. They can bring people to get together as well. Um, and in some, some companies, uh, narcissistic CEOs can inspire uh, change and transformations of organizations. So it's not all bad, but I think what the findings suggest is that we should maybe as citizens become more aware of the fact that a person who expresses a lot of self-confidence does not necessarily have the skill to function well as, as, a, as a leader. Uh, so without undermining the, the, the democratic process, of course. Yes, I mean, and this is the difficult one to line. I mean, what I was going to say was, it occurs to me, looking at the fact you were doing an experiment with school children, is that the moment where you try to educate people away from following narcissists, very much mm -hmm. at the point where you're finding it? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if we should... This, this is a, this is, should we change people's... Voting, like parents, should we try to help people with narcissistic traits use their narcissistic traits in a positive way for positive change in society? And maybe that's the way way to go. Mm. Uh, because people with narcissistic yeah, sorry, sorry go go oh no, like people with narcissistic traits have this ex very strong desire for other people's respect and admiration. But if we make that contingent on positive change, maybe they can use their their, their strong desire for approval also for for the greater good. So. Maybe that's the way we should we should go if we want to intervene early in childhood. Yeah, because I think we can think of people, I don't know, Winston Churchill springs to mind. I think many people thought he was a narcissist. Yeah. But historically, yeah. I guess, well, for your country as well as mine, uh, yeah. it was a positive thing. Would you agree? Yeah, so it's not, so narcissism is not all bad. I think it, it, it depends on the person's other personality traits as well. Um, but I think what all people with narcissistic traits have in common is that they have this ability to, to, make, to make an impression that they are more competent than they, than they actually are in, in leadership position. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. 
It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.